0: You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Many years ago, in 2007, when I first began working as a professor at a small liberal arts university in the eastern townships, that's on the fringes of Montreal, Quebec, I thought it would be a celebratory moment. At last, I had secured the coveted tenure stream position in a university. Instead, upon my arrival, I was handed a picket sign because, I would come to learn, the faculty members and staff were all on strike. So, there I was, sporting a red bandana to protect my head from the blazing sun, under which other faculty members and I trudged, not a little sluggish because of the oppressive summer heat. I didn't fully understand the politics, local and otherwise, of what was transpiring, but in that slow march of protest outside the university, I began to learn a thing or two about what happened prior to my arrival there and what the strike was really about. But it would actually take me years to understand how deeply complex institutions are, how characters take on lives and motivations of their own in such settings, and how deep some of the histories of these institutions run. Now, this is very likely the only similarity I share with the main character of Kevin Lambert's new book, Karel of Raberval. That character, Karel or quarrel in English, is the new guy from Montreal. But he becomes a part of this protracted strike at a lumber plant in Raberval, the Syrie du Lac factory. In the dead of winter, by the way, not high summer, So the meaning of Kerel's name is clearly apt, and not just from the point of view of the strike alone, although there are other reasons for its relevance. This 27-year-old character, too, seems to be an outsider, naive in some ways, but definitely not in others, trying to learn the politics of a place about which he knows little, at first. He does develop his own opinions about an approach to the strike, preferring, quote, clear-cut and forceful opinions to long and laborious reasonings. A passionate argument is, for him, enough to induce certainty. If he feels, it's true. And if it's true, he has to feel it, end quote. is also an almost lethally attractive figure, Explicitly compared to Apollo, the most beautiful of Greek gods, and not entirely unlike the Pied Piper, in this instance of young boys and men seducing them with an appetite that's unquenchable. So the novel opens, quote, They're beautiful, all the boys who come into Karel's room, who line up to be taken from behind. He strings them on a necklace the beautiful young boy's necklace he wears around his neck, as our priests do their rosaries, and our boss ladies their pearls. End quote. Now, before you try to go off and dismiss this book as being about a small town or about sexual politics in a small town of Quebec, allow me to curb that tendency to do it. Sure, it's set in a small town that actually does exist. Rapperval is, in fact, on the southwestern shore of Lac Saint-Jean in Quebec. But it's also not simply a moment of serendipity that I found myself talking about this book with another person in Germany, a completely different country, and that this person was as much, if not more, of a fan of Lambert's work than I currently am. Lambert has a global fan base already. And this, his second book, also already won the Marquis de Sade Prize in Paris. So listen up, everyone, because I'm sure that, at 30, this author hasn't even come close to hitting his full stride, and yet he can already be characterized as being in possession of a prodigious talent. And that conversation in a global context, that global aspect, even a global politics, if you will, also finds its way into this book. He holds these global and local permutations in fine balance. The book is divided into five sections with an epilogue, an articulation of the structure of Greek tragedies. Indeed, as an example, one of the sections is titled Komos, which is a lyrical song of lamentation in an Athenian tragedy that occurs when the play's tension rises to its climax of grief or horror. And yes, both grief and horror are relevant to this novel's plot. Each of the entries in each section may be characterized as short stories, each of which is given its own subtitle, and in which Lambert describes the strike from different perspectives, certainly not always those of Karel, although the novel opens with his viewpoint. It's an interesting maneuver that we are also outsiders entering into the politics of this place and this quarrel and don't really know what to expect or what motivations are at work below the surface. Even so, by the second chapter, General Assembly, Lambert skillfully allows us closer proximity in his adoption of the second person, the you, that unfolds us, the readers, into the action and makes us keenly feel what it must be like to be tramping back and forth on the picket line in sub-zero temperatures. So here's a quote from the book. Quote, You don't take off your mitts, and if they have holes in them, you damn well know it. The mornings get to you after a while, every little puff into the hollow of your fist— tries to ward it off, but the cold is back before you can even take another breath, End quote. Then there are also those who are on strike alongside him. There's Judith, the accountant, and her sister, a trimmer in the factory named Jezebel, and Christian Charles, and Bernard, other factory laborers, or Kathleen, the electrician, and Jacques Fauteu, meaning faulty, the overseer of the factory, among others. And from almost the opening moment, there are inflections of violence that inform the narrative. The boss of the factory, Brian Ferland, in a seemingly kind gesture, distributes hot cups of Tim Horton's coffee to the shivering strikers. But these cups, we learn, have been discreetly laced with bleach, so that each of these strikers who swallows even one or two sips land themselves very quickly in the hospital thereafter. And that's just how the book opens. In a way, I I know I should have saved this episode for Halloween, given the violence that erupts later in the narrative. And my listeners will remember that I covered one of his earlier books, You Will Love What You Have Killed, for last year's Halloween episode. This is how much I love this author. I'd say that Lambert's talents are something like a cross between Stephen King and Alice Munro. I mean, if these two had a child writer, they'd spawn Lambert. The grisly viciousness and explicit gore of the former, and the psychological savvy, depth of motive, and ironic tone of the latter. And perhaps a little dash of Marie-Claire Blais, or better yet, Sheila Watson – a great aunt with her penchant for seeing the potential for classical tragedy registered in the here and now. Of course, I'm primarily picking English-Canadian writers in part because I can't think of a close equivalent in terms of other French-Canadian writers. Within this book, there's actually a reference to Maria Chapdelaine at which I had to laugh out loud because of his real departure from that kind of writing. He yokes these completely different styles in this tightly wrought form. And if he doesn't shy away from violence, and let me tell you, he doesn't, this book is not for the faint of heart. He doesn't shy away from all manner of politics either, and not just those involving specific relationships between the characters. From the outset, he's exploring gender and gender politics and sexual politics, the almost all-male heterosexual gang of employees who only reluctantly support, quote, the proposition banning discrimination against women at the factory, end quote. At the same time, Fauteu lets it be known that, quote, women being hired at the factory were taking men's jobs. In Lac-Saint-Jean, it's mainly men's jobs, in factories, in the forest, on the dams, that are being cut, and, Photo makes a point of this, Men aren't going into the hospitals and stores to take women's jobs, end quote. This is the same man who is later compared explicitly to the Canadian trade union leader, Michel Chartrand, whom his colleagues feel sports the same look. But of course, this is an ironic observation, because if they feel he sports the same look, he certainly doesn't act like him. And of course, feelings aren't to be trusted Not in this book, anyway. Then Querel, we learn, would not have been hired if it had been understood that he wasn't heterosexual. And Bernard, as yet another example, is indigenous, and some of the local politics and interactions with him gesture toward broader and national dimensions of indigenous politics. But even Bernard understands the local politics in a way that Querel does not and hears the rumbling of the storm before Querel does. And before we give Bernard a pass, he's also the mouthpiece for some surprisingly conservative and let's just say egregious ideas. Then there's the media that has its own agenda and that initially covers a story as a local news item. On top of this, in the upper echelons, the owner of the factory, Brian, is at odds with his own father about how to manage the growing conflict. His father, Donatien Ferland, Is of the opinion that while it was an act of treason that his employee should be so quote unquote ungrateful for the steady pay and stable employment, his son should simply settle the matter with them. Donatien has decades of experience behind him, understands through trial and error how to run a sawmill. His son has bookish theories and an A plus in statistics. And so the strike goes on and on, and grows more and more hostile with violences enacted on either side of the conflict. But this is no ordinary conflict across generations about how to run a sawmill, especially when there are global permutations with larger international corporations and environmental demands pulling and tugging at the edges of the characters in the story. These permutations initially are also classical ones that suggest the proportions of tragedy and tragic consequences. So, the stage is set for a conflict that grows in scope and scale, and the novel offers material that really is the stuff of Greek tragedy. Desire. Revenge. Murder. The widening gyre of the story expands and expands, and just as you think they're about to get out of control, there's this strange interlude by none other than the narrator, or Kevin Lambert himself as he announces it, just to throw things a little more off-kilter. It's this marvelous interjection in the book in which irony already makes it impossible to keep our feet on stable ground. And as a quick aside, allow me here just to commend Donald Winkler, the award-winning translator who really has done a commendable job at capturing the irony that courses through this book. That's no small feat. Well, to return to that strange interjection by Lambert himself, here's a little sample so you can get a, a sense of what he's trying to do. Here's the quote. I, Kevin Lambert, the author of this modest fantasy, am taking the clear-cut position, here, on page 137, in support of the employers and in opposition to the infamy of the strikers, whom I have striven to describe as faithfully as possible in the preceding pages, and those that will follow. I want the reader, if he or she has the kindness to continue reading this book, to bear in mind— that the adventures to come are recounted in order to highlight all the perversions of labour organisations which are intent on opposing the production of wealth in a Quebec that is sorely in need of it. End quote. Do what you may with that, my dear listeners. I'm going to leave you poised before the most explosive moment or series of moments in the novel, And I won't tell you what happens next, because even if I did, you wouldn't believe it. I had trouble both putting the book down and continuing to read, as only a truly horrifying and well-written book would compel a reader to do. In the end, one of the things that Lambert accomplishes is to render apparent how a strike is never just about a strike and the characters who play different roles in it are far more complex, have far more complicated motivations than we ever usually know. So, what took me years to learn in terms of the complexity of institutions and characters and histories, Lambert captures, with a dexterous hand, laying bare human impulses and tracing the mysteries of persons, institutions and the larger stories, of which they're all a part. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. It was just two years ago that someone brought to my attention the author Casey Plett. Now, if you don't know this author, I'm going to strongly recommend that you begin with Plett's online and regular column for McSweeney's Internet Tendency from the years 2010 to 2011, the column is titled Balls Out A Column on Being Transgendered. An instructor at Columbia University, Plett offers a frank exploration of and reflections about her own process of gender transition in the 19 entries for this column. I found it a highly personal eye-opening, at times comical and other times tender, vital work in terms of creating awareness for the kinds of challenges for trans persons. When Plett confesses in one column that she wanted, quote, a body you don't want to rip yourself out of, end quote, I felt this deep ache and sadness that anyone should ever have to experience that. The columns cover a range of topics from, for example, cultural expectations of gender for young women who are pressured to look like an ideal they've been given, that is, to aspire to these impossible ideals exacted by the beauty industry, compared to those for young men who may, quote, want something different from what they've been given. And that's in column 13. She also explores the hormone treatments that occasion what she calls a second puberty, the pills that she refers to as, quote, fucking sadness in a bottle, end quote, and the mood swings that accompany them. She addresses shopping for women's clothes for the first time, that's in column seven, or the culturally inappropriate representations of being trans, column eight, acquiring a name change, column 15, grappling with gender dysphoria, column two, sexual reassignment surgery, column five, the physical side effects and the medical systems approach to trans subjects, column 11, and imagining parenthood. That's in column four, and that's probably my personal favorite, especially when I went on to read other columns about her interactions with her father. I absolutely loved it when Plett was candid about recounting the moments she comes out to her father, and the kind of contradictory emotions she experienced involved in no longer being a boy when she, quote, also loved being a son. It's so poignant. Well, if you haven't read anything by Casey Platt, this really is the place to start. And again, I'll include a link in my show notes. I'll come back round to Platt's work at a later date. But for now, consider this your takeaway and my future intention. That's it for today's episode. I've got more writers lined up for the episodes left for the season, but if there are other writers you think I should be talking about, please do reach out. And please don't forget to subscribe to Getting Lit with Linda on whatever high-quality platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Thanks for joining me again today, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.